the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. This afternoon, I just got three basic principles, or three basic points, and it's this. Number one, Paul talks about um, what, first of all, what slavery to sonship looks like. Um, And here's the three points. First one, what are we enslaved to? All of us in this room are enslaved to something, and Paul unpacks that. What are we enslaved to? That's the first point. Second point, how does that enslavement happen? How do we get tripped up over this spiritual slavery? And then three, how do we break free? So the three points this morning, as I unpack what it means to go from slavery to sonship, right? To be a son, daughter, in Christ. Uh, Those are the three points. What are we enslaved to? How does that enslavement happen? And how do we break free? The first one, what are we enslaved to? Paul says right here in verses 8, he says, you were enslaved to non-gods. That's our fundamental problem, that we're enslaved to non-gods. But what are non-gods? Well, he says in verse uh, 9, he says, this is how you're enslaved, by turning back to, the, to these weak and miserable forces. That didn't help. Because what are these weak and miserable forces? Well, he says in verse 3, he says, basically, the weak and miserable forces are the elemental things, the basic, or another translation, the, the basic principles of the world, right? That we're all enslaved to these non-gods. And the reason we are enslaved to them is because we're turning to them. And the reason we turn to them is because underneath all of our hearts, we're enslaved to this thing called the basic uh, principles of the world or the elemental things of the world, depending on what Bible translation you have. Now, what's interesting here is this. Paul in Galatians, is writing to a church that he helped found. And when he left, some Judaizers came in who were still demanding Christians to still keep um, the Jewish customs. And so Paul catches wind of it, writes the letter to the Galatians, and he says, who bewicks you? Who gave you a different gospel? Don't you understand that you're turning the gospel inside and out if you add anything to Christ's work. And that's exactly what the Judaizers had done. So Paul writes a treatise against, in the book of Galatians, against legalism. But, and he says, you know, he's getting to the crux of his argument. He's saying, and what's really is driving that, if you decide to go back to legalism, he says, basically what you're doing is that you're living underneath the basic principles of the world or the basic elemental things of the world. Now, what's interesting is, is that he's tackling legalism in Galatians, but when he gets to Colossians, he says the exact same thing. But the issues are different in Colossians. The issues that Paul is dealing with in this church is relativism, mysticism, syncretism, Gnosticism, right? It's a hybrid of all these different religions, right? And so Paul says that they too, in verse 20 of chapter 2 of Colossians, he says that you too are going back to the basic principles of the world or the elemental things of the world. And so Paul says that the fundamental problem, whether you are legalist or relativist, whether you're moralist or you're syncretist, um, 
it, all of it flows from the, from the same tap root. Uh, all of it flows from the ideal of this basic principle of the world. The Greek word for basic principle is this word right here. It's called stokia. See if it's up there. Stokia to cosmos. And that means basic principles of the world. Now, what are these basic principles of the world? In pagan culture, during the Greco-Roman world, most pagans believed that there was a God behind everything. There was a force that drove everything. And so they prayed to a myriad of gods. They believed in the sun god, the moon god, the agricultural god, the sex god, the wine god, the whatever god. And they believed that they had to appease that guys if they wanted good favor. They wanted to be blessed. And so if they did right by that God, if they performed for that God, that God would bless them. And if they didn't perform, that God wouldn't bless them. And so they lived underneath this sort of what I call fundamental principle called the if-then. If I do this, then this will happen. And Paul is saying that whether you're a relativist or a legalist, he says... The basic principle of the world is to try and control God. It's, it's to truncate your Christianity or live out a belief system that somehow thinks that you can control God or your environment or your world based upon what you do do and don't do. And Paul says all of that flows from the same old premise and principle. And it's the principle that we saw in the garden, right? The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says... If you eat of the fruit, then you will be like God. And it was that, their way of trying to bolster a certain kind of works righteousness where they could literally be on the same level as God was. And, and from that point on, that is how the whole human heart works. We see it in Job. When Job gets everything taken away from him, you see in Job chapter 4, one of his friends, Eliphaz, comes to him and says, listen, God, you must have did something wrong, right? You, you're not living, you know, the way you should be because had you been living the way you'd been, you know, had you been living pure and righteous and this wouldn't have befalled you. This wouldn't have, befell, this wouldn't have happened to you. And so here he is, Eliphaz, just bringing him to the very simple principle that we all struggle with. And it's the whole ideal that somehow, if we do certain things, then certain things must happen. And oftentimes we do that with God. And this is how we know we do it with God. Do certain things for God with an expectation that God's going to hook you up. And if he doesn't hook you up, and you get mad, that's further evidence that you're doing what I'm talking about. Because what we end up doing oftentimes is, is that we put God in our debt. And when he doesn't perform, we shake our fist at him. And we often put God in our debt time and time again. And so, and so the gospel comes and withers that impulse, withers that stoichia to cosmo withers that thing all the way down to its roots. And so 
We are enslaved, all of us, to this elementary thing. We're enslaved to the Stoichia II Cosmo. We're enslaved to this ideal that somehow we can control God. And that's what Paul's getting at when he's talking to or writing to these Galatian Christians. He says, look, you're going back to an old fundamental principle where you try and be in charge of every part. You try and be the master of your, and that's just not going to work. I remember when I was... Uh, uh, many years ago, I was asked to speak at this very ultra fundamentalist Bible college in Spokane, Washington. And they asked me to come teach on the book of Romans. And so I go up there, I teach on the book of Romans. And I was invited by the student body president. And when I went up there, I don't think he, um, I don't think he was prepared for what I was going to talk about because when you read the book of, of, of Romans. Romans is about Jesus. It's about the gospel. And it explains actually what the gospel is. And so here I am in this class teaching the book of Romans. And I get up to about Romans chapter 14. And then I do a Q&A and they start asking questions about it. And the student body president, which I could tell was a little ticked off at what I was saying about what the gospel was, says to me, he goes, man, I'm a little confused because this gospel sure sounds easy, almost too easy. And uh, he just could not get this whole ideal of grace, that it's not conditioned on anything. Grace is unmerited favor, right? Which means that, you know, grace comes without any works, comes without any merit. And so he asked me a question in the class. He says, do you think drinking's wrong? And I tried to be as politically correct and as honoring as I could to the college. I just said, well, I don't think drinking's wrong. I think drunkenness is wrong. I think if you exercise temperance and you're over the age of 21 and you want to have a drink, then that's fine. And uh, he looked at me like, huh? He goes, don't you understand that alcohol is destroying this country? Why in the world would you give a Christian license to drink? And so in the moment, I just... It was the spirit of God. I just said, you know what, man? Let me just tell you straight up. You can be in sin for drinking, but you can also be in sin for not drinking. In fact, you can be in sin for listening to Tupac Shakur, but you can also be in sin for not listening to Tupac Shakur. And I said, you can, you know, you can watch R-rated movies and be in sin, right? But you can also be in sin if you refuse to watch those same R-rated movies. And I could tell him and the class didn't know what in the world I was talking about. And I basically was saying to the guy was this, that if you, you think because you don't drink, because you don't watch R-rated movies and you don't listen to Tupac, somehow you're better than other people who do, you're in sin. Because Romans 14, 23 says, whatever's not of faith is sin. And I said, look, Man, the fundamental problem of most Christians is this. Most of their convictions about who Christ are are built on their character and convictions. It is not built and centered on the perfect at work and faith in Christ. And I say, so you can do anything as a Christian and be in sin if somehow you look down your nose and you're a little sneering at people as if God somehow approves, accepts, values, loves you, and will bless you based upon the stuff that you do. Now, I don't know about you, but there are often times in my life when my life ain't together and God hooks me up. 
There are times when I'm struggling and I'm saying to myself, there is no way God's going to come through and he comes through. And there's other times when I say, I deserve God to come through because I've been doing the litany of stuff that we Christians do and then God doesn't come through. Because he always wants to keep my Christianity a little off balance. And let me know he's in charge and he blesses how he wants to bless and he blesses whom he wants to bless whenever he wants to bless. And he's always beating the Jonah out of all of us. You with me this afternoon? So Paul says, you go back, you're going to the Stoichia 2 Cosmo. You're going back to the basic principles of the world, the if then. If I do A, B, A and B, C is gonna happen, right? If I'm struggling financially, sow a seed, right? If I got a need, sow a seed. That's what they used to tell me in my charismatic world. So we were sowing all the time, right? Because God's going, right? Your attitude determines your altitude. Come on, we all have those. But when you come to God, God will not be manipulated like that. The whole gospel. Think about Paul. Paul is writing to this Galatians and he says, listen, this gospel like God does not come from man or a man. It came by a revelation of Jesus Christ and Paul basically saying the way I came to the gospel proves the gospel. It had nothing to do with me. I didn't pick the gospel. The gospel picked me. I didn't pick Jesus. Jesus opened my eyes to him. Right? And how you come into this Christianity is how you live out this Christianity. Right? If you came by grace, you, you are saved by grace. And that withers that transactional Christianity that we have. Right? That's what the gospel does to the Stoichia 2 Cosmo. It drains us of that transactional Christianity. I do my part, he does his part. And I get mine. Now, Paul said, you used to be enslaved to this God, this miserable force, this elemental thing, but the gospel cuts away at it. So, how does it work? Very simple. Verse 8 says, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not God's. He's saying, look, the thing underneath the hood of your heart isn't a true God. It poses as a God, but it's not a real God. But it's a God um, nonetheless, kind of, sort of, if that makes sense. Well, let me make it make sense. We, there is no person in here that doesn't have doesn't have a religion. Even atheists have a religion, right? All of us believe something. Something becomes our God, whatever it is. Paul's saying, listen, we all believe in a God. It may be a false God, but a God nonetheless. And we all believe in that God. Um, The interesting piece about our own Christianity is, is that the way we construct these gods Uh, The way we typically construct these gods because of sin is that we come into this life and we have values. And those values are things we live out of. That's what a value is. Something you live out of. 
right? It's your mission statement or mission statements or your vision statement or vision statements. And out of those values, they compete. They, they conflict. And one of them has to win as you move on in life. And whatever that value, whatever value wins becomes your center of value, right? It's the value all of your life orbits around. It's your MO. It's your operating principle. Whatever that is, if it's not Christ, becomes what the Bible says, your idol. An idol is nothing more than an object of worship, right? It's something that you bow down to. It becomes the fundamental principle by which you exist. And whatever that idol is, whatever the object of worship is, the Christian Christianity says that that becomes your God, little case, G. And we all have that God. Everyone in here. That's why we get upset. That's why we get anxious. That's why we, we struggle with giving. That's why uh, we get frustrated. That's why we have meltdowns when people critique or criticize us. Because underneath the hood of our heart, we struggle with some kind of God. And the beautiful piece of the gospel is what? The gospel is different than religion, even Christian religion, because the gospel gets to the root. You see, there's a moralistic kind of Christianity that only hits the what and how. The what and how is this. You're struggling with sin, right? You're lying or you're cheating or you're sleeping around or you're drinking too much. And the what is, is that you're a drunkard. You struggle with lust. You're a fornicator. And the how is, what do we do to fix it? Well, the gospel doesn't do the what and how. It assumes the what and how. But what the gospel goes after is the why. It hits the sin underneath the sin. It doesn't say you're a drunkard. It says, why are you a drunkard? It doesn't say you're sexually immoral, though it talks about it, but it hits why you're sexually immoral. And the reason why many of us do the things that we do is because that God underneath everything we struggle with is the the thing that the gospel comes to unwither or wither. Do you hear me this afternoon? How does it do it? How does it wither that stuff? Well, simple. Let me write this here. Real simple. We can take any sin. We can take sexual immorality, right? We can take sexual immorality here. How are we going to knock this down? How are we going to defeat this thing? Well, Christians will say, well, let's start with spiritual disciplines, right? Meditate on a bunch of Bible verses that talk about how sexuality, sex before marriage is wrong. Right? Or meditate on God's word. Think on these things that are pure, right? And so you do all the spiritual disciplines, right? But you also have to couple these with personal convictions, right? So make sure you're careful what you watch on TV, right? Be careful the crowd you hang out with. It's probably not good for you to start hanging out at the club, right? Don't drink, right? Because that may arouse certain feelings, And what we end up doing is, is that we start reducing our ability to knock this down on stuff that, here's the thing, this is what I do, right? This is what I do. 
to not to live sexually chaste, and this is what I don't do to remain sexually chaste. And what we end up doing is, is that we start thinking that if I do this and this, then I'm going to be free of this. Right? We're back to the story, Kia 2 Cosmo. We're back to the fundamental principles. We're back to trying to control our sanctification and holiness. And we start doing the spiritual disciplines. We develop personal convictions. But we find ourselves over time that this stuff starts to become rote and mechanical. And we're not walking free of it. So the question is, how do you walk free of it? Are you telling me that spiritual disciplines aren't important to to dealing with this? Are you saying you shouldn't have personal convictions? No, not at all. These are highly important. But you have to rephrase it and say, how do I knock this down? How do I knock down sexual immorality? Well, I'm saying you got to knock it down by the gospel. And what does the gospel say? The gospel is good news. Good news about what? Good news about the person of Christ and the work of Christ, right? The person of Christ describes my security, right? My security is in Christ. My security is not in me living pure, sexually chaste or sexually pure. My security is in him. I have a brand new identity. I don't have to get an identity by living sexually immoral. I don't have to try and tackle the issues of oneness and intimacy and satisfaction through sex. I can find that in who I am in him. My security, my rest is in him. But also my victory, right? The work of Christ says that the cross was sufficient, right? So I've got my security is in Christ and my victory is in Christ, right? I'm not looking for security in my spiritual disciplines to knock this down, nor am I looking to not doing this, right? My victory in looking at this to knock this down. The beauty of the gospel is is that my security and my victory is in Jesus alone. And if I derive my security based on what I do or don't do, I'll never be secure because I never do it good enough. I never pray enough, I never read enough, I never fast enough. I don't care how many retreats, seminars, or whatever stuff you go to and tell yourself, I'm never going to do it again because I had this incredible experience when I went to such and such retreat. I'm coming back with a new game plan. I guarantee you, you will fail the game plan. Guarantee it. Remember some of you when you went to youth camp in high school and the big bonfire? And you cut up all the little pieces of paper and you put all the secular music on each piece of paper, right? And you folded it and you you went to the the bonfire and you threw it all in and you sang some songs about no turning back. And you went back to your city or your neighborhood or your community and you did not turn back for a couple weeks. And then you're kicking yourself for burning those CDs, Right? But look, your security can't be in this. Your victory can't be in it. You know, if you think your victory over this is based upon what you do do and don't do, you'll never feel victorious because sometimes you win and sometimes you lose the battle. 
But when you realize that the victory has already been won and you can rest in his work and not your work and you beat that into your brain, which is the gospel, all of a sudden it gives you a whole nother orientation for living. Now, what's my role, Eric, in this? Well, John 6, 28 through 29, Jesus, remember John 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and then he had walked on water in front of his disciples. And the disciples say what? Verse 28 and 29, they say, wow, like what do we do to work the works of God? Like how do we do that? Like, what kind of formula, what recipe? Like, what are the things you're doing and not doing? And Jesus said, all right, here it is. Because they're arguing for the if-thens. They're arguing for the stoichia two cosmos. They're looking for the formula. Jesus said, here's the formula. The formula is this. Believe in him whom the Father has sent. There's the formula. Believe in me who the Father has sent. And I wish that was easy. Because we don't believe in him whom the Father has sent. Our role in Christianity is to accept his acceptance of us. Our role in Christianity is to believe everything that the Bible says about us. That Christ won in himself. Our Our role is to believe, like I said three weeks ago, that there's nothing you can do to get God to love you more and there's nothing you can do to get God to love you less. That is your role. To get to that fundamental place in your life that says, I accept you, I love you, I forgive you, your debt is canceled, you're my beloved, I adopted you in me, and there's nothing you're going to do that shocks me. In essence, he's saying, believe or faith. That's that's what you do. Believe in this. Believe in this. Believe in the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, don't get it twisted. Your spiritual disciplines and personal convictions are important. But all they do is strengthen your resolve in him. They don't add any extra work to him. He's already done the work. Your personal convictions helps you and keeps you from being shipwrecked in your faith. But it doesn't add to your faith. Don't get it wrong. You need convictions. Don't get it wrong. You need spiritual disciplines. But this is important. This is very important. But it's not going to add your faith. It's, it's, it's going to strengthen the faith in his work, not yours. So what do you believe? What are you going to trust in? You're going to trust in this and live by the stoichia to cosmu? You're going to live by the if, thens, if I do this, then this is going to happen? Or are you going to trust this? The gospel. Well, You look at it and you say, I don't want to live here. I want to live here. How do you do it? 
Like, give me some stuff to do now. How do I walk out the door and do this stuff? What is it? All right, I'm going to give you some. You ready? Let me see what time I got. All right, I got a minute and 56 seconds. I'm going to give you two things. You ready for this? Here it is. All right? How do we break free? Very simple. Paul says in verse 10 and 11, he says, well, let's start in verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Right? Look at Paul. Paul's arguing, remember, Paul's arguing for the gospel. And remember, the Galatians came out of paganism. And the Judaizers were driving them into moralism because they were saying Jesus wasn't enough. You got to keep the Jewish traditions as well to be saved. And Paul saying, you know, if you do this, you're going back. What Paul is saying is, is that he said they're not going back from from uh, the the gospel to paganism. What he's saying is, is that they're going back, meaning they're going back from the gospel to moralism, which is another way of saying moralism is just as bad as, as, um, what's this other P here? Paganism. There it is. (laughs) Because they all come from the same place. You're going back. See, all of us need two conversions to be a Christian. Or let me say this. Two conversions to be, two conversions to live out our Christianity. The first conversion is from the world to Christ. And then when we come to Christ, everything is sweet and beautiful and awesome and amazing. And then there's that season of our life in Christianity where we got to live in Christ. And then we need a new conversion, which is the conversion from from Christianity to the gospel because we've reduced Christianity down to stuff, doing stuff. Paul's saying, listen, if you, if, you, if you continue this path, you do know you're going back. You're not going back to paganism. They're not going back to wild parties and drunkenness and all that stuff. But he's saying the thing that drove all that is the exact same, everything that drove this before you came to Christ is now driving and informing this now that you are serving Jesus. And let me explain how this happens. You remember before you came to Christ, people said, man, if he could come to Jesus, because he is such a jerk. Man, he needs Christ. And then he comes to Jesus. And now he's a Christian jerk. You know those, like, it's all cloaked in Jesus, but he's a jerk. <laughs> he, just, he just transferred one God for another God. The thing that drove him here, he just transferred it over here. That's what Jesus said. That's the whole point. Remember when Jesus said, listen, all of you guys over here, all up in arms about murder? <laughs> he just said, look over here. If he, said, he said, if you just get angry... You've murdered your brother. That's, that's the point. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, he said, anger is nothing more than murder in the acorn. He's saying it's the exact same thing. 
He said, over here, you're committing, you know, adultery? You guys all understand. You look at those adulterers and say, how could they do this? And these people over here struggling with lust, but lust is nothing more than adultery in the acorn. This is what he's saying, you guys. Like, to go back isn't that you're out there doing what you used to do that was very obvious kind of sin. You can come in here and do refined sin. But you're still going back because you're trusting in something other than Jesus. This is what he's saying here about them. You're going back. All right? The stuff that drove you before you came to Christ, now that you come to Christ, that same stuff is still driving you. It's just packaged around a lot of spiritual stuff. I used to do that. Played basketball, grew up in the inner city from South Central. Basketball was big in my neighborhood, right? And I longed to one day get a basketball scholarship, and I did. Ended up at Oregon State. And I wanted to be at Oregon State because I knew I'd be in the Pac-10 and my mom would get to watch me on TV because they would show games on the West Coast. And I knew I would come back to L.A. twice a year and play USC and UCLA. And I remember when I got to Oregon State and I had a freshman year that I never thought I would because I ended up beating out the Chicago player of the year. And he got a lot of fanfare coming into college. And it was a big signing for Oregon State. And I remember reading the papers. This guy's name was Byron Theory. And I said, there's no way I'm going to beat this guy out. This is Mr. Basketball for actually the state of Illinois. How in the world am I going to beat him out? Especially when I was sort of a second-tier guy in high school. I kind of slid into my scholarship at Oregon State. And I'm saying to myself, how am I going to take this dude down? And I got there, and I did. And I had this magical run my freshman year. And all of a sudden, I started getting clippings and articles, and the Argonian was showing some love. And I remember early in the morning in the hotel, I would go down to the hotel room, get my Argonian out, and see what they said about me. Loved it. Never got this kind of attention in my entire life. And then all through college, had a pretty good year, blew out my knee, had a couple of injuries, but anytime I had a good game, and it was some press clippings that I knew were coming that next morning. I would be there early in the morning to read them. And then I got Jesus. And I didn't play in the NBA. And then I jumped into ministry. And guess what? You can get attention in ministry. People actually come up to you after sermon when you do good and pat you on the back and say, man, that was a wonderful sermon. And you're like, wow, I know that feeling. And then you start living for the pats. And all you do over time, like Paul, is start going back to the very fundamental principles that drove me in basketball before I came to Christ. Now I'm doing the exact same thing in Christ. Looking for the approval. Looking for the pats. Looking for the recognition. Some of us, we didn't get what we thought we deserved out there. And we're going to show them because we're going to get it in Jesus now. The gospel withers that. How? Two ways. Very simple. Two ways. And Paul says it in verse 9. He says, but now that you know God... 
or rather are known by God. That's the first clue of breaking free. Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, what is Paul saying? It's not a slip of the tongue. Paul's not saying, now that you know God, oh, my bad, or rather you're known by God. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is basically saying, the way you walk free and live out the gospel and start to drain the power of the stoichia to cosmo that we all have inside of us that wants to get recognition and power and influence and the sense of wanting to be somebody through Jesus, <laughs> the way you wither it is to truly understand that our role is to not make much of our love for God or the fact that we know God, but to make much of God knowing us. And why is that so central to the psyche? That word know is, is a very intimate word. It describes the way God feels about you. The fact that he loves you. That he's intimately engaged in who you are. That he knows you all the way down to the bottom. That he's, he's not like what we do when we're single and we want to date somebody. And we think this is the one. And all kind of chemicals go off in our brain. And we're excited about this relationship until we're four or five months into it. And then we start seeing the warts, the cracks, the chinks in the armor. And we're like, whoa, I don't, I don't know. And you're, you're at a pub with your bros trying to figure out how to untangle this. And you all know it's, it's easy to get into a relationship. It's harder to get out. And you feel stuck. Because you didn't know. And now you know. That's not how God relates to us. God is not four or five months into his relationship with you going, oh, man. <laughs> the Holy Trinity is not at some pub and Jesus is like, man, <laughs> wow. What do, I, what do you guys think? Should I, it's not me. Well, it's not her, it's me, right? So, that's not who Jesus is. Jesus knows you all the way down to the bottom. He loves you all the way down to the bottom. This is what Paul saying. How do you wither this stuff? How do you get free of this kind of spiritual slavery where you're on this constant continuum of trying to bolster a sense of worthiness and self-righteousness by what you do? Paul drains it. He says it happens by you making much of his love for you, not your love for him. Because your love for him is imperfect and incomplete at best. Thank God he loves us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. That's the Bible. Lastly, the way we break free is to understand God sent two things to break us free. And I'll end it right here. The first thing. Ooh, I'm, I'm not, my bad. All right, here it is. The first thing is, verse 4, he sent what? He sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that he might receive the full rights of son. So the first thing he sent was his son, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as what? Sons. And that's not gender specific. Sons, daughters, whatever, right? 
He sent his son, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. What is he saying? Back to what I said three weeks ago. Listen, you only have half a gospel if all you understand uh, of it is Jesus died for your sins or that Jesus died in your place. The other half of the gospel is what? Jesus lived in your place, right? He lived 33 and some odd years for what? To meet what you couldn't meet, to do what you couldn't do. The difference between Christianity and every other religion is is that all other religions have a teacher, a spiritual leader, a vicar that speaks truth and the followers have to live up to that truth. But Christianity is different because our leader, Jesus Christ, spoke truth and he demands you live up to it. But the caveat is this. He lives up to the truth that you couldn't live up to for you in your place. That is the sweet news of the gospel. And he does it by coming into your humanity, coming into this world and living underneath these laws and edicts that you couldn't, that God demands somebody do. He does for you. And then God credits all of what Christ does into your account and sees you through the lens of his son, not your sin. That's good news. So God sent his son. That means you have been justified. And justification is just this Legal word, right? Legally, God sees you as righteous in him. But he also sent, and this is the last thing and we'll go. He sent the spirit of his son by which we cry, Abba, Father. There's a legal side and then there's this experiential side, right? It's not just this thing that is decreed over us. It's something we get to enjoy and experience, right? This right here, this legal act, this is Good Friday. This right here, Spirit of His Son, this is Super Sunday. This is Resurrection Sunday right here. We get new life in Christ. That is the power of the gospel, living out of our sonship. That's what it means to live as daughters and sons in Christ. Part of living out of your sonship is to understand that your legal status has been changed. That now you have sonship in Christ. One speaks to justification in Christ, but the other talks about sanctification right here. This talks about sanctification in Christ. This is justification in Christ. And don't ever get any of these confused because that is where we get tripped up when we think that our ongoing work of sanctification adds to our justification. And not understanding that there are both truths on the same coin, but they're opposite sides that God puts together in himself. And because of his love, he sends his son for us who couldn't live up to his demands. And he lives up to those demands in our place. And yet at the same time, what does he do? He sends the spirit who fills our heart with love. That's Romans 4. Romans 6. Romans 4 or 6. It's somewhere in there. We live out of that love because of all this that he did. Because he sent these two things. And these are present real truths. Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace today. May these truths, may we beat these truths into our heart. May we understand what Paul is saying here. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.